Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. So one of my most enjoyable reads in quite a while is A Swim in a Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. It's a condensed version of a class he's taught at Syracuse for more than 20 years on the Russian short story. And before your eyes glaze the rest of the way over, hear me out, if you're imagining some ponderous academic tome written by a tweedy, pipe-smoking, professorial bore, you should know that one of George's descriptions and you really do get the feeling he'd want you to call him George, you you should know that one of his most vivid descriptions of what makes a short story work involves a favorite Hot Wheels set he had as a kid. I had one of these too, right? With the floppy lengths of orange track that linked up with those little plastic tongue depressor thingies, which allowed me to exercise my gifts both in highway engineering and construction, even though my imaginary day job was still world champion race car driver. But George said his set had these battery-operated little gas stations. And inside each station was a pair of spinning rubber wheels that would grab a Hot Wheels car and shoot it out the other side. I never saw such a thing. But the thought of it fills the six-year-old in me right now with envy, even today. Especially when George said that if he spaced those gas stations just so... He could get a car started before he left for school in the morning and it would still be zipping around that track when he got home. See, not all literary critics are created equally dull. Well, George Saunders says that a good story works like that Hot Wheels set did. The reader is the little car and the writer has to place gas stations of meaning or entertainment or surprise at at the right intervals or else the reader runs out of juice and interest and starts, I don't know, scrolling through Instagram. It makes a little sense, doesn't it? Sermons actually work the same way, I'm told. I mean, you'll stay with a preacher on a tangent about Hot Wheels for only so long before you decide the answer to what in the world is this going to is nowhere and start scrolling through Instagram. But that little Hot Wheels metaphor actually helped me better understand how Holy Scripture works as well. And not because I think the Bible is all fiction. All compelling stories, whether they actually happened or not, include the right details in the right places, don't they? And if you're reading something truly great, something that stays so alive that generations of readers have handed it down with reverence and awe like a Chekhov story, or the Gospel of John, you and I should assume that there's a reason for every last thing that's been included, no matter how confusing or offensive or strange. To trust Scripture is not to withhold or suppress the difficult questions that arise in us when we read it, but to trust Scripture is to believe that there must be some kind of wisdom latent even in the parts that bewilder and infuriate us. The best stories, after all, will never leave a reader settled safely in the place where she was when the story began. 
So my purpose here has been, first, to take a step back and consider what makes a powerful story work, and to suggest that there won't be a detail or a character unworthy of our attention in a great one. And then, from here, to look squarely at one character in John's Gospel, an apostle, but apparently not one of those Jesus said he guarded and protected, the one destined to be lost so that the scripture might be fulfilled, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, the heartbreaking fact that close to the heart of Jesus' story was this tragic and unfaithful friend. Well, Judas has gotten plenty of attention across the centuries, as you know. In Dante's Inferno, he spends all eternity in the lowest circle of hell. More specifically, he spends it in one of Lucifer's three mouths, the other two chomping on Cassius and Brutus, the assassins of Julius Caesar. Vivid stuff there. It's not so hard to see how that little gas station keeps the story moving forward. Vengeance on bad guys has fueled blockbusters for centuries, it seems. It also makes you wonder if Dante had experienced a little betrayal himself and was working out some of his own frustrations on the page. There was also a Gnostic Gospel of Judas, probably written in the later 200s, in which Jesus laughs at his disciples while they're praying, which hurts their feelings and makes them very, very angry. Only Judas keeps his cool, and Jesus pulls him aside and unveils the mysteries of the kingdom just to Judas. I'm guessing most of us would be a little more drawn to the idea of this Gnostic Judas, a misunderstood Judas who was actually in cahoots with Jesus, a good guy who got a bad rap, rather than Lucifer's everlasting snack. But we're not reading either of those accounts today. They're not actually our scriptures. And that difficult comment in the Gospel of John about Judas having been destined to be lost actually sits very much in the space between these two extremes. It really does. So let's not explain away the treachery of Judas. And let's not put him in the mouth of Lucifer in your imagination. Because neither of those stories is our story. To anyone who's read the Gospels, it is startling to hear Jesus say that he protected all of his disciples but one. Back in John chapter 10, Jesus says he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, right? Which echoes that parable we love over in Matthew and Luke in which a shepherd abandons 99 sheep in search of the one who's wandered off. What gives? Well, what we might consider first is that Dante's version and the Gnostic Judas relieve a tension that we still have to wrestle with in the biblical Judas. If Judas just gets what he had coming, well, I'm sorry, what's the gospel again? That we all get what we have coming to us? I don't think it is. The gospel is our redemption by God's grace through the cross from that very world of violent retribution. The ways of that world are what the ways of Jesus refute. But if Judas was actually a good guy who was just misunderstood, Well, the story of our redemption loses something else. It no longer includes the kind of betrayal that really does happen in this world. And in some ways, 
Such a betrayal really can be a culmination of all sorts of forces that break our lives and our world apart. There are questions of power and money and violence and loyalty and so much more wrapped up in this character that is Judas. And he wasn't just one of the hundred sheep in Jesus' fold, was he? He was one of the twelve closest people to Jesus. And he was one who, according to Matthew, felt remorse, tried to give the money back, and when he failed, took his own life. So when John says that Judas was lost, there was no need to bring the afterlife into it at all. Judas is the very image of lostness, dying in despair, all alone, after betraying a friend to his death. It's hard to sit with this image, especially if we've lost a friend or loved one to this kind of despair. But friends, it may be that if we have lost someone dear to us whose life got away from them, someone who got caught and just couldn't find the way out, someone who hurt and even betrayed the people closest to him on his way down, well, it may be only more critical to hear that Jesus' story includes just such a damaged and damaging friend. Because what we also know is that the end of Judas is not the end of this story. Redemption is. Redemption by way of a self-giving love so forceful and perfect that we come to wonder whether there's anything in all the cosmos, human betrayals and betrayers very much included from the very beginning, that won't ultimately be caught up within it. Today we baptize a child. And I know Locke and Reed are just so happy to have a baptismal sermon to fold up and tuck into Winnie's keepsakes that references Judas in the jaws of a three-headed Lucifer. I, we do what we can. But friends, it is for the likes of Winnie, too, that we trust Jesus enough to follow his story wherever it takes us. In a moment, her parents and her godparents will make baptismal promises on her behalf. And they'll begin with three renunciations. Renunciation of Satan and the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. Renunciation of evil powers that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. And renunciation of sinful desires that draw us from the love of God. In other words, we will renounce with them everything in this world and in us that destroyed Jesus' friend Judas and that destroyed other lives through his. We won't pretend that Winnie will be spared those forces. She's already been exposed, even in us, I'm afraid. But we don't only renounce. We also turn. We turn to Jesus and accept him, not these other forces, as our Savior. We place our trust not in the ways of violence and vengeance, but in his grace and in his love. And we promise to follow him and his story wherever it takes us, to be a community that surrounds Winnie with this story and lives as best we can into this way of self-giving love that Jesus showed us with his own life to the very end. Because even allowing the tragic figure of Judas to remain tragic, even acknowledging his utter lostness, actually does not deny that Savior who would leave 99 sheep in the fold and crash off into the thicket after a lost one who'd wandered away. Quite the opposite, I'm, I'm sure. 
to name Judas as truly lost is simply to name him as precisely the one Jesus runs after all the way to Easter. And each aspect of Judas's lostness and of ours, greed, hope, betrayal, hopelessness, regret, in this story, each of these ultimately becomes not just a failure, but one more reason for Jesus to run after us. For it is not in any form of human lostness, but in the one who runs after the lost ones, that the scriptures are most deeply fulfilled, even today. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm.